0: the
1: Slaughter and May podcast. Hi, this is Jordan Ellison from the Slaughter and May competition group, and I'm joined today by Professor Scott Muller. Scott, among many other things, is the Director of M&A Research at the Business School at City University in London. Today, I'm going to ask Scott, what's the point of M&A? And I come at this question from a particular competition antitrust angle because I think the value of M&A is more relevant uh, to antitrust assessment than, than it's ever been. Um, traditionally, us competition lawyers and our competition regulators look at the harms that m and might do in terms of reducing competition in markets. And we spent a lot less time thinking about the potential economic or other benefits of m A and I think that has to change there's there's an increasing um, assumption I think amongst regulators that ever smaller competition harms should result in deals being blocked, and that only makes sense as a as a policy if um, if you can assume that the m and A doesn't result in a great deal of benefit. Uh, I think increasingly uh, there are regulators who are sceptical about whether M and A results in in benefits. So today, I want to sort of start the process of you know, educating myself on how how we ought to think about you know the the economic benefits of M and A because because personally, and speaking for the you know the competition law world, I, I think we spend a lot more time. Debating the the harms of M um, and and less time talking about the, the benefits. So, I want to explore um, some of that with um, with Scott, who is very well placed, I think, to to talk about this both from a practical perspective um, and from an academic perspective. Scott, I know that you've had. Many different roles in M and A over your long and illustrious career, sort of consultant, banker, academic, but perhaps you could just give us um, a whistle stop tour um, of your career in MA and how how you got started and how you've ended up um, in the academic study.
0: Um, thank you, Jordan. My uh, my 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 background is uh, one that does span both academia uh, and the what we call in academia the practitioner world. I've I've been uh, involved with the business school uh, since, uh, well now for about 20 years. Uh, I came into that having done a number of guest lectures and some other uh, things on the side uh, whilst being at Deutsche Bank uh, and working in M&A and in private equity, uh, which I had done for about uh, six years uh, here in London. Uh, Prior to that, I was with Morgan Stanley for 12 years uh, in three different places. Um, before Morgan Stanley, I was uh, with Booz Allen Hamilton, the management consultancy, as you say, which is where I went immediately after uh, attending business school to get my MBA. Um, the, my, my, my research since coming to, to academia has been on the side of uh, mergers and acquisitions, and I did found, uh, back in 2008, the uh, M&A Research Center at the university, um, and we uh, are the leading uh, m and research center at any business school globally. Uh, I can say that um, without any doubt in my mind because to the best of my knowledge, we are the only dedicated m and research center at any business school globally. Um, but that also means that we do engage with a number of other business schools and, 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 and professors and other academics in those business schools uh, in research. And we do host, again, the only dedicated m and academic conference that takes place annually um, you know, and uh, will be taking place next uh, you know, in, um, in, in, in the summer. Uh, on that. So that's the background that I bring to this, uh, you know, Jordan, and, you know, happy to speak about it, um, you know, from any of the perspectives, but I will just say one more thing, and that is that one of the reasons why we founded the MA Research Center was was that there was a, a, a very large body of literature out there that may have helped me a lot as a practitioner, if in fact I had known about it, but the fact of the matter is is that there's almost nobody you know, in the uh, active practitioner world, you know, who does read um, the very weighty uh, academic articles that are there. And therefore, we set up that, that uh, academic research center uh, in order, I mean, excuse me, that business school research center in order to be able to get some information from academia into practitioners. And indeed, thank you very much, Jordan, for giving me the opportunity to do that here today.
1: No, and 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 Scott I we 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 need this learning so um I'm I'm really grateful that that you're going to give us the benefit of some of that some of that research maybe before we get into you know any very empirical findings it it'll be interesting just to almost at a qualitative level get your view of like the main kind of objectives of of A. like what are the top 3 things that make a A CEO say, I'm going to go out and buy this business rather than, you know, build my own. What really, at a kind of gut level or a qualitative level, do you think really, really drives business to do do M&A?
0: Yeah, I mean, very good question. I mean, the first first part of that answer is before you get to an M&A deal, other alternatives are typically assessed. That is, should we indeed grow organically? Should we do it through a joint venture or strategic alliance? Should we take a minority position in, um, you know, in another company and thereby gain some benefits, perhaps even as the largest shareholder, but 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 not as a controlling shareholder. Um, uh, so there there are other alternatives to doing an M and A deal, and any uh, strategic assessment should have. Uh, very carefully assess those, uh, you know, prior to coming to the decision of doing an M&A deal. And indeed, M&A is not necessarily uh, a bimodal decision, should I do an M&A deal or should I not do an M&A deal? But getting to your question about, you know, what are the most common objectives, um, you know, that a board would then look at uh, in terms of trying to assess whether in fact an M&A deal uh, should, 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 should take place, I think they really fall into three different um, three different areas. Um, you know, one is synergies, the second is access, and the third is size. And let me just briefly mention what I mean by each of those. Um, synergies, people think uh, most often about expense synergies. You know, and that is the ability once you put two companies together uh, to take out of the newly combined organization. Uh, what would then end up being excess expenses? It may be that you don't need two plants, and you could close down one of the manufacturing plants. You certainly come into the deal having had two CEOs, two heads of IT, two heads of sales. You know, uh, two of you know anyone in the C-suite. You probably don't need two of those. You know, you have two payroll systems. You know, you'd be able to combine it into one. You know, so there's a lot of expense synergies. You know, that you can get rid of, but. Um, The focus, although that very often by the analysts who are looking at a deal will focus on that, there are revenue synergies as well um, that you can get. That is, you may be able to sell more product uh, because of the product that you're selling uh, from one side. In other words, you may be able to combine those. Uh, There's financial synergies that take place as well. Um, Those financial synergies being the fact that larger organizations tend to have a better credit rating, all other factors being equal than small organizations, and therefore you may be able to get the kind of financial synergies of, for example, and it's not the only um, example that I could give, you know, of having a higher credit rating, therefore paying less on the debt and the interest that you're going to be uh, paying on that, uh, on that debt. And, and you can also get tax synergies. Um, you know, it may be that there's an organization that has a tax loss carry forward, you know, that would offset the taxable business that, um, you know, that, that the other uh, organization combining, uh, you know, in a merger acquisition would be able to have. So synergies are more than just the very often stated, um, you know, expense synergies. Access, I think, is is almost as important. Uh, and of course, in any particular deal, whether it's synergies, access, or size, it, 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 it could be one being more important than the other. Um, but by access, what I mean is you know, they, that there are deals that are done in order to be able to access markets, uh, such as a geography, you know, a British company that wants to expand into France, can try to do it the old-fashioned way of organic growth and build it from scratch, or they can acquire somebody who may look like a competitor, but of course you don't compete in the same marketplaces, but you're in the same point in the production chain uh, on that. So a geographic expansion, market expansion, that is that you may want to add a product line that doesn't um that, that is not currently in your portfolio of products. Um, and uh, you also can you know through access get access you know uh, to things like innovation uh, on that and I think there's there's some very important studies that have come uh, that have been done in academia, for example, that does show um, you know that 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 firms do seek innovation and do improve their innovation capabilities r and d uh, the um, the the ability to be able to uh, produce r and d to get patents uh, for example. Uh, you know, from, um, you know from, from from that. This is actually quite important these days. Uh, the access to innovation and to IT and to digital is one that's very important. You know, when you do begin to have uh, organizations talk about the fact that they don't have the internal digital capabilities, you know, one way to get that is through acquiring it uh, as just one of the most timely examples today. And then the third area is size. Um, size does matter. Um, In the corporate world, I think we all know that, you know, being part, being a larger organization does mean that you're more attractive to customers, you're more attractive to staff who might want the, or or to many staff, some might prefer to be with a small organization, many people prefer to be with a larger organization, you know, where they can count on a pension or they think they can, you know, at the end of their career. Uh, It matters to suppliers uh, on that. this is, this is, of course, you know, Im- important because this is the area that I think y- you mentioned first when we started off in terms of what regulators and lawyers very often will focus on. Because, of course, size and increased size does tend to be market share. But, of course, that also depends upon whether, in fact, it is a horizontal acquisition and you're, and, and you're getting greater market share. Um, but certainly market share and increased market share you know, is one of the effects, you know, of increasing, uh, of increasing size uh, on that. Um, I, sh- I should mention one other point, uh, Jordan, just on this. And with all of these areas, by the way, you know, there have been numerous studies, you know, that have done about this, as you can probably imagine. Um, but for uh, both the size and the access, these can very often be, and that's why I'm mentioning this here at the end because it's kind of a combination of those two, a strategic response to what the industry is doing or to what another competitor is doing. So when a competitor goes out and merges with another one of your competitors, um, you know that redefines what size is within the industry or at least within the competitive marketplace. And a very valid strategic response on the part of a, the, par, the parties that are not combining um, you know, would be to look for a combination that they would be able to do to keep up with you know, their, their, their competitor. And it's one of the reasons that you hear about merger waves, uh, because um, one, one, one talks about merger waves in general, but actually the waves tend to be at the industry level um, and they typically get, cut, um, get kicked off you know, by one party within the industry, redefining what size means within that industry and almost forcing, you know, the the other players in that industry, um, you know, to go through similar co- uh, consolidation.
1: So that's, that's fascinating, Scott. Thank you. And uh, that paradigm's really helpful, I think, in terms of synergies access size. Um, if, if we're just then... You know, thinking about those as the sorts of objectives that boards have when they embark on a merger. um, Like, how often does that succeed in in creating value? And just if we just sort of take, you know, shareholder value at large to start with, you you know, you often see headlines in the press saying two thirds of M&A deals fail or whatever the the factoid is. What's what's the latest and greatest academic research on whether or not m and A's succeeds or fails in in creating shareholder value?
0: Um, again, excellent question. And I would say that that there's more academic literature on whether in fact M&A deals create shareholder value that's gone back literally to the 1980s and perhaps even earlier, um, you know, than on any other particular topic um, on that. Um, my own feeling is uh, shareholder value is easy to be able to calculate and one of the reasons why we focus on it is because it's very easy to determine relatively speaking to other things Uh, but that isn't necessarily what's being looked at in the board now boards of course have a responsibility at least in certain countries you know uh, in order to be able to um, you know to increase shareholder value as their principal concern uh, on that Uh, But it's not the only concern, you know, and it is not an uncommon deal, you know, that where a company may go out and buy something which doesn't necessarily in the short term increase shareholder value, uh, but does position the company in order to be able to, for example, achieve synergies in the longer term. achieve access in the longer term or increase size but in the longer term you know because sometimes things will get smaller before they get larger uh, you know there are a deals that are done in order to be able to get a particular team you know a research team you know a particularly um, insightful uh, founder or leader you know of the organization or team that that leader has put together you know so it isn't necessarily always about shareholder value the answer to your question of what does the literature show about whether M&A creates or destroys shareholder value has changed over time and unfortunately uh, the world seems still to hold on to a fair amount of the literature that was quite conclusive that M&A deals destroy shareholder value which was in fact true back in the 80s and 90s and the research that was done on deals during that period. post the millennium, the turn of the millennium, um, that seems to have changed. Uh, and indeed, studies started to appear in 2004 and five to say something has changed here. Uh, because prior to that time, it looked like anywhere between 60 and 80% and a good rule of thumb was 70% of deals destroyed shareholder value. That is when you compared the companies that were combining with companies that didn't combine uh, 70% of them uh, did worse than those that, in fact, didn't combine, so therefore had not done an M&A deal. Uh, that, was pretty, that pretty much shifted around the turn of the millennium um, to a 50-50, and that's held very steady uh, since that point. Uh, so, but in M&A, um, the academic literature is, is pretty consistent. Um, you know, uh, in the past 10 or 15 years, it's showing that uh, shareholder value um, you know, is about a 50 50 proposition when you just empirically look back at the deals that have done have been done and then do the, you know, the proper analysis, you know, to try to um, isolate for that particular factor.
1: Competition regulators um, will say that, you know, shareholder value could mask a whole bunch of different effects, which could be good for consumers or bad for consumers. So, um. If a deal results in less competition, higher prices, more market power, there may be a bunch of shareholder value there for the lucky shareholder in the monopolist, but a bunch of harm to consumers and therefore a kind of antitrust bad deal. Um, But the shareholder value might exist um, for reasons that are actually totally good for consumers. So if the combination allows you to get rid of a lot of variable costs or the combination unlocks, you know, an operational synergy or a cleverer way of doing things, a cheaper way of doing things. You know, that, that, that could be good for shareholders and good for consumers. So it will be interesting, you know, to get your take on what the literature says on you know, where M&A does create value, you know,
0: what, what tend to be the levers that are creating that value? One of the things that, um, you know, that, that uh, drives that um, is whether, in fact, the deal is what's called a horizontal deal, you know, versus a vertical deal versus a conglomerate deal. And, you know, just very quickly on those, although I think people should be pretty familiar with those terms, you know, a horizontal deal would be buying uh, a, a company that is in the same in the production chain that you are. Uh, It wouldn't necessarily be a direct competitor. As I say, my earlier example of somebody buying a competitor in, I mean, buying a company in France that does the same thing that you do in the UK, um, you know, wouldn't change the market share in either France or the UK, um, except to the degree that over time, perhaps that company would be better able, you know, uh, to increase its market share organically than at that point in time. But the one thing that a horizontal deal does allow is, is it allows management on both sides of the company you know, to be able to understand what the other side is doing. And if I can again go back to uh, my point about, um, about deal success and that things seem to change around the turn of the millennium, uh, those of us who have been operating in the industry um, found, in trying to look back at what changed, you know, said what really has happened during that period is that there's been more of a focus in the, you know, in the M&A industry, so to speak, um, on post-deal integration rather than just getting the deal done. Uh, and, the, and the analogy I like to give is it used to be that people defined deal success as to whether you got married. You know, uh, but a successful marriage is not getting to wedding night a successful marriage is is having many, many happy years of living together um, and that 's the difference you know uh, that that companies began to focus on integration and realizing that the CEO for example couldn 't walk away from the deal and start on the on the next deal until he'd made or she'd made sure that the deal that they had currently done was in fact being integrated properly um, so horizontal is a lot easier to do, that, to, to do if the two uh, organizations are in the same point you know, in the production chain. A vertical deal, of course, is one where you buy a, buy a customer or where you buy a supplier. Um, and again, you tend to know the industry. And in the relative scale of things, you know, a vertical deal is not as good as a horizontal deal. Although, again, within industries, you may you know, understand them very well. You may even have employees who have worked in the other um, you know, in, in the other company at one point in time. But the conglomerate deals are the ones that tend to be least successful. Uh, and the world does go through waves of, of conglomerate mergers, um, you know, and then ultimately, um, you know, they seem to fall apart from their own weight because that's where you have, um, you know, uh, uh, business areas that are, in fact, not related at all. Another thing is, is of course, companies that, that don't do ad hoc acquisitions, uh, or what are called opportunistic acquisitions uh... and indeed even me too acquisitions you know that i was kind of talking about earlier where you're trying to do something in response but where they have what's called an acquisition program and again there's 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 a fair body of literature about the success of acquisition programs in fact it was a number of consultancies a number of years ago you know that started talking about the the importance of acquisition programs that is is that You know, it isn't about any one particular acquisition, but that a series of acquisitions will be used to achieve what those long-term goals are. Um, And you are putting the pieces of the puzzle together, you know, to create a picture that perhaps the world doesn't know yet when you're doing each one of those acquisitions, you know, but they will because, um, you know, ultimately... You know they will see the effect of what your you know of what your strategy is, and and there is literature that says that 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 related acquisitions. and I'm not saying identical, therefore, but related acquisitions in an acquisition program, you know, can be much more successful. Um, and then interestingly enough, there is a learning effect. You know, uh, practice does make perfect, as with most things in life. You know, and the more deals you do, you know, the better it seems to be that you can get that um, you know, success of doing acquisitions uh, on that. Um, there's some research that we did um, you know, uh, a, a, a few years back you know, that showed that firms that don't do any acquisitions at all during a period perform three, over 3% worse in terms of their share price performance than firms that just do one or two deals during that period. And interestingly enough... If you do three or four deals, um, you know, uh, that's even better. And we looked up to the point where they did six or, uh, six or more, um, you know, and it was even better there. So, so, you know, doing, and I'm not talking here about financial sponsors, uh, you know, Jordan, I'm talking about strategic deals. So I'm not talking about private equity firms, you know, buying, um, buying firms, because ultimately they intend to sell them. I'm talking about you know, the deals that are the marriage for life, you know, where they are looking at integrating them into their current organization. And that's where those studies looked at in terms of those strategic deals and, and excluded the financial sponsor deals. So there really, you know, is a greater success of horizontal deals. Of course, that's the most deals that take place anyway. You know, uh, there's, you know, the fact that in acquisition program, so that you that, that you link up different M&A deals and then, lastly, you know that you do get that learning effect. You know, um, you know, more is uh, more equals better. Um, practice does make perfect.
1: Yeah, yeah. That that's fascinating because those sort of three categories of horizontal, vertical, and conglomerate are still sort of central to the antitrust law world and how, and the prism through which regulators look at deals as well. So it's interesting that some of your research is is you know. Exploring those different those different channels. Um, I I guess I want to finish with maybe um, the most topical um, question in our world at the moment, which is the impact of MA on innovation. Traditionally, there's been a a a view that, particularly in say a vertical deal or a conglomerate deal, um, there's no loss of direct competition between the parties. They're not direct competitors. And often you're trying to plug together different parts of a supply chain or an ecosystem, uh, and that's going to unlock an ability to do something more efficiently or smarter than it was than it was done before. Um, and and those deals were seen as you know pretty um, pretty on the on balance maybe good for innovation, um, good for new ideas and new products coming to market, or just costs being cut. Um, I think this. Thing, there's an increasing counter view in the competition law world that actually deals are on balance potentially bad for innovation that um, whether it's a vertical deal or a horizontal deal just things that reduce competitive tension um, things that make the big guy bigger sort of take the wolf from the door and therefore the, the, the impetus to innovation gets less and I know that This is an area where in our world, we're kind of at the level of counter assertions, but I know in your world, there's been some actual research into this. So I'd be interested just to hear how far the research has gotten on the relationship between M&A activity in an industry or a sector and levels of innovation or levels of R&D or um, that that kind of thing, um, just you know, how far that's gotten as a study and what the what the results are in terms of any relationship there, you know, positive or negative.
0: Yeah, in, in excellent question, and I will just say one that you alerted me to. So I've actually got an article sitting here in front of me, um, which uh, has in the abstract uh, the final comment uh, that says we conclude that synergies obtained from combining innovation capabilities are important drivers of acquisitions. Um, and I can say, therefore, you know, that there is a body of literature um, and some seminal studies you know, that have looked at innovation in relation um, uh, to mergers and acquisitions. Uh, they tend to look at R&D activity and the number of patents you know, that are applied for and awarded, and Basically, if I can just summarize it at a very high level, it finds that that companies do seek innovative firms in order to be able to improve their own capability of being able to, um, to be more effective with their research and development expense and that as measured by the number of patents that have been awarded uh, to them. So. Um, that's, that seems to be pretty conclusive, as with that concluding, uh, you know, sentence, you know, from that one particular study, um, you know, that was done. But there's other studies, you know, that have been confirming that as well. And indeed, um, at the uh, business school, uh, we are in the process of uh, working on a study that's currently at the conference uh, stage, you know, that looks at one aspect of that, which is relating. Uh, You know, to ESG, and I think a very timely topic is one uh, that relates to both um, uh, sustainability and climate, uh, that shows that when two firms combine and they have a different ESG rating, And here, actually, I'm focusing on just the uh, E side of that one, Um, but it seems to be consistent with the S and the G from some other studies. But on the environmental side, in terms of their their independent rating, that post that um, deal taking place, the newly combined organization tends to have an E rating, an environmental rating that is closer to the higher of the two uh, than the lower. So in other words, firms are even seeking out other institutions to buy that have a better uh, environmental um, uh, performance and rating you know in order to be able to improve their own. So uh, I know that's that's just a very small part of where innovation is, but certainly one which is very timely and very important you know with the climate uh, conversation that's taking place now and the you know the, the imperative you know for, every company in order to be able to look at what its carbon footprint is uh and you know how it's reacting in that particular uh manner so i hope that's helpful in you know being just one specific example on that you know but also building on the other studies
1: yeah that's that's really fascinating actually and i think this is a debate that we'll be returning to a lot um, where um practitioners are going to have to um get a lot more uh, familiar than we currently are with um, some of this research. I mean, as I reflect on the discussion we've just had, Scott, I think, you know, it's clear that from a competition regulator perspective, not all deals are good, right? There are bad anti-competitive deals that a competition regulator should block. Um, There are lots of benign deals which a competition regulator will have no problem with. And there'll be some deals which are maybe right on the cusp and there uh, it is right that a regulator thinks about not just the costs or the downsides of the deal but also the potential economic upsides of the deal, particularly if those flow through to consumers through something like you know better innovation so So I think what I take from this conversation is not sort of and this is not what um not what I'm doing, and certainly not what you're doing as an academic not. Not some sort of grandiose claim that all M and A benefits the wider economy, or that all M and A is value value enhancing, but that, but that, as a competition community, when we're thinking about what deals get blocked, what deals get permitted, we at least ought to have a more empirical or you know research driven um, appreciation of, of the upsides of deals than we than we currently do. So. Um, I feel like I'm at the very bottom of a very big mountain in terms of learning about this, but um, today you've at least you know, helped me get into the foothills. So um, it's been a really useful discussion. Um, I hope we can continue it further, but, but thank you very much for your, your time today.
0: And, and lo- lovely to uh, have talked about it with you. And yes, I do hope this discussion can continue in a much broader sense as well, because I think uh, I would totally agree with you that, that M&A is a complex topic, you know, and to try to look at it in any through only one lens uh, doesn't do it justice. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.